Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This episode is going to be the first in a series of interviews with the musician and poet Steve Scott. In time, we'll get to hear about his beginnings in England, his musical career, the story behind many of his songs, his spoken word albums, his adventures in California and Southeast Asia, and so much more. But on this episode, Mr. Scott is going to discuss his devotion to the Gospel of John as a unique expression of both a witness to the life and words of Jesus Christ and as a literary and historical document as well. We begin by getting a brief scholarly backdrop on the said Gospel. So, you're working on a project concerning the Gospel of John. First, if you could explain to listeners uh, who may not know what we know about historically about the book of John, the Gospel of John, like the author, for example, of the time period it was written, who it was written to, how does it differ from the other Gospels, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, coming off the top of my head, uh, some of the early church fathers identify the Gospel of John as written by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, towards the end of the first century. Or they talk in terms, uh, more recently people will talk in terms of, you know, final written form towards the end of the first century. And you've got some people that will say, oh, the Greek is in the present tense and it refers to the temple. Um, So we can surmise from that that there are layers in this gospel that were penned or, you know, put into a work processor around the t- when the temple was still standing. But then you've got other people that will say, no, the fact that it's, there's present tense in the Greek and things like that is evidence that this was initially uh, an oral account that um, was performed in various settings and ended up finally getting crystallized and codified in written form. What distinguishes it from... The Synoptic Gospels is, of course, the style, the style of Jesus' speeches. He's not out in the villages telling parables and things like that. He's giving fairly lengthy discourses um, to religious authorities and in in response to disciples' questions. And so that would tie back a little bit towards um, the things that we were talking about earlier about Greek drama, is that those ex- those extended kind of situations where people quote misunderstand something unquote and jesus elaborates and it gives an extensive explanation of something you get these 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 dialogues in which philosophical and theological truths get unpacked that would be another distinguishing characteristic of the gospel of john Um, it has stories in it that you will not find in the other gospels turning the water into wine at the wedding uh, the Samaritan woman uh, at the well, those stories. So John was writing or in conversation with some unique source material. People are suggesting that John's gospel was intended as a supplement 
to the other Gospels because it filled in uh, historical details uh, that were not present in the other Gospels. It like brought in explanations as to what John the Baptist was doing prior to getting arrested and things like that. Back in the day, uh, people would say the Gospel of John is obviously like a, a Gnostic forgery from the second century, or the Gospel of John bore great imprint of Hellenistic Greek philosophy or Hellenistic and Greek ideas, hence the word logos and things like that. And they would say this is evidence of a much more developed approach to who Jesus is. They would say that, they would point to some of the things that are mentioned in the Gospel of John, such as the the breakdown between the blind man and his family and the synagogue and the threat to throw him out of the synagogue, throw the family out of the synagogue. And so some scholars used to say things like, oh, this didn't occur until much later on in the history of the infant church. This proves that the Gospel of John is a put-up job that was written much later than the events that it's depicting, and it is intended to provide a sort of a narrative rationale for the experiences of the Christians, you know, a couple of generations down the road. People are now saying, no, stuff like that was happening in the lifetime of the followers of Jesus. We've got lots of reasons to believe is that what we're looking at is an eyewitness account mm-hmm. of what went on when Jesus walked around and taught. The fact that the author John chooses to emphasize different aspects of Jesus's ministry and different teaching styles in Jesus's discourse makes this gospel a supplement to the other material that was already well known and covered the ground in terms of what Jesus did in the villages. So you have a reliable eyewitness account that supplements information that we already have from the other gospels that draws upon unique sources for some of its stories, perhaps Jesus's mother, Mary, for example, that John was placed in charge of in John 19, both Mary and John were instructed to kind of like take care of each other or provide some sort of a living arrangement for his mother now that Jesus was on the cross and he was um, dying and going to be resurrected. So Mary might well have been a, uh, a resource in filling in some of the stories, some of the narrative information that was not available immediately to the synoptic gospel writers, or the synoptic gospel writers had different priorities. I mean, Luke was drawing on oral accounts and written documents for his his gospel. John was an eyewitness, and he had conversations with people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Lazarus, and probably got the inside scoop on a whole bunch of stuff and worked it into his gospel, all the time structuring his gospel to resonate both in the imagination of his Jewish hearers, but also resonate in the expectations of the hearing and the imagination of his Greco-Roman environment and its audience. People still press me on what I might recall, and so I will repeat. 
It is like falling into a deep well and then a dreamless sleep. But what we call night and hours does not obtain. Up till then, my memories remain. They say that while I burned, my color fled. My face, a mask of chalk. My lips were clay. My breath, torn into strips, was tightly bound upon the few words rattling in my throat. Yeshua ba Mariam, he who is my heart, is he beside me yet? Can he be found? And daily I would sift through the chaff of their evasions to glean some reason for his long delay. Also, before I was too weak to cry, the tears would flow, and they pulsed so hot I would swear my very eyes were bleeding. In the end, I was laid out and washed, wrapped in linen, spices, oils employed to sweetly cloud the onset of decay. Then I was shelved, the entrance sealed, and let the truth be told, I'd still be there if Martha had won the day. What followed next defies exact description. I have no way of proving they are right in their accounts of how these things are framed. The stone was moved, I will allow you that. But before I saw the light, I heard my name. So what is it about John that intrigues you as an artist? My particular interest in John, although I've had to do a deep dive into both the forms that the stories in the Gospel of John take and what is signified or intended by the author in adopting and adapting those particular storytelling forms to his subject. So there's a balance between the cultural form that the Gospel of John takes and the unique subject matter of the Gospel of John and striking a balance between those two things. Uh, what interested me about the Gospel of John was because I come from an art school background and because I spent years, many, if not decades, trying to think about Christianity and the arts and wading through all the, the literature that had been generated about how the church and culture were to connect, engage, or stay apart from each other, or how Christians were supposed to think about the arts, whether it was simply, you know, part of life under the, the provenance of God in which Christians fulfill a cultural mandate, or whether it is Christians using the arts to evangelize or to communicate, or whether it is Christians in another tradition um, seeing the arts function in a way where a different kind of reality presses in on everyday reality. And I'm thinking of the, some of the some of the ideas that I associate with the, the roles played by the sacraments in the church. So you have a sort of a providential cultural mandate approach to the arts. You have a somewhat transactional informational communication through the arts in the name of mission. And then you have the arts 
functioning as a species of sign that bring reality a, a different kind of reality to bear upon everyday reality so it's all these writers from you know reformed evangelical eastern orthodox catholic traditions wrapping their particular confessional bias around the enigma of the arts and the church and often doing so in somewhat abstract language and an abstract language predicated upon a say a particular kind of theological system and what i thought you know i wasn't thinking pro or con any one particular theological system what i was thinking looking at the everyday religious culture or christian culture that you and i and the rank and file experience certain kinds of paintings certain kinds of films certain kinds of music i began to realize that the conversation whether it be reformed or eastern orthodox or whatever was way over there and what people ordinary people were spending their money on was way over here and i thought there has to be something which is much more accessible concrete that communicates a should we say a theology of cultural engagement a theology of social critique a, a transformation of tradition while laying a very personalist or a personal encounter with the, the subject matter which in the case of the gospel of john it would be jesus that there has to be something which builds the bridge for the rank and file to get their heads around the material or that which would give them the equipment for a kind of a fluent engagement with the surrounding culture in a Christ honoring way i thought because the academic stuff grounded as it is in a systematic theology and freighted with all kinds of arcane terminology is not cutting through and preventing the somewhat market driven christian subculture from flourishing more than it ever did before you know there has to be something concrete practical narrative engaging that nonetheless gives you the foundation stones and the building blocks of a an actual christian understanding of how to connect with and engage the culture in a redemptive and a restorative way and for me stress for me that is the gospel of john you can find social critique cultural critique uh, transformation of traditions plus personal encounter all decked out in a sequ- like a chain of narrative forms that uh, and a sequence of narratives that are freighted with imagery symbolism and metaphor that would have made sense to the first hearers and readers of John they shared the cultural memory of the storyteller they knew why stories from the gospel of John resonated with what they'd heard growing up hearing the old testament and the old testament paraphrases and the old testament commentaries I mean John spoke into that cultural memory with his storytelling about Jesus but he also did so in a culture where greek and roman ideas about rhetoric and public speaking and literature or whatever were in effect so john uniquely in my opinion bridged that sort of 
drawing upon the cultural memory of his listeners who were grounded in the Israelite meta-narrative, as it were, the big story. But he did so in such a way that resonated with the surrounding culture, the contemporary culture. So meaning that for every book you can pick up that will talk about Jesus as the replacement of the temple or Jesus as, you know, fulfilling the feasts of Israel or the the Old Testament parallels to the, the Jesus stories that John tells. For all that material that's out there, there's now also a growing body of material that talks about John writing his Jesus stories like they were short Greek plays. Or people asking, what if we look at how John structured his gospel in the light of contemporary ideas about what good rhetorical practice was, derived again from Greek and Roman sources? So that combination of an Israelite meta-narrative, or the big story drawn from the cultural memory of the people that John was talking to, freighted through the sort of the contemporary framework of Greek and Roman uh, rhetorical and dramatic ideas or idea, what makes good drama, what makes good rhetoric, what is good rhetorical practice. In John 20, where Jesus is in the upper room talking to his disciples following the resurrection, he says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. So we have in John's gospel a case study of first-generation missional contextualization that speaks, A, to the meta-narrative or the big story of the Israelite listener, but B, is also contemporary in terms of its the, the way it's structured, whether it be Greek drama or Roman rhetoric or a, a mixture of the two, in how he wrote, wrote the stuff that, or how he performed it and how it got written down. So... To be clear, what you're saying is maybe to relate it to a, a contemporary criticism is that Christians only speak to other Christians. Like they use certain phrases, use certain allusions that only Christians within that culture or evangelicals, however you want to put it, that only they seem to understand. And it, if you use that same language to try to speak to the uh, secular world, so to speak, that it misses the mark. Well, it misses the mark because it imagines a world that no longer exists. Right. And so, and so the, the challenge is double insofar as you can say, well, okay, that world no longer exists. So I'm not quite sure who you think you are talking to. You are saying that Jesus is perfectly adequate to answer yesterday's problems. Is that really the message you want to communicate? Is, is a question that anyone should ask themselves. If you really believe that Jesus Christ is current and contemporary, in terms of application and you are really reliant or you let's say you you tell people you are reliant upon the holy spirit in stirring both memory and imagination in looking for contemporary application of the jesus message then why is it you sound like you're trying to ride yesterday's horse which apparently is you know i can use a phrase like that why are you trying to communicate in the 21st century with the assumptions that belong more to the 19th century. Uh, or or to, to bring it forward, what, what possible sanctification is there in being out of date? I would assert 
based on what you just said, there's also another problem that maybe contemporary Christians have in communicating their message is that they themselves are not Jews from 2,000 years ago. So a lot of things that would go without saying or would be very obvious to the original hearers of the gospel, the only way we can figure that out is to immerse ourselves in the Jewish culture of that time or learn Hebrew or learn Greek or Aramaic. So I, I feel that that's a problem. In addition to, I think uh, a lot of Christians today are nervous when they try to contemporize, if that's a word, the gospel message because they're afraid of losing the original uh, message that they perceive it to be. And they may point to, like for example, maybe progressive Christianity, where some of those branches have went so far to accommodate the culture that it, it doesn't seem to resemble Christianity at all. They've cut out so much scripture to make it fit with the current culture. So do you want to speak to both of those points? Well, I think the very first thing I have to do to um, adequately answer that question is tell you about the time I got lost on the subway in Beijing <laughs> okay. in, in 2007. Uh, I was in Beijing after having been in South Korea, but I'd gone to Beijing to meet with uh, different people to talk about the arts because the Olympics were coming up in Beijing 2008. So I was wondering if there was something that could be done, like a small a small show, but make it digitally available and have it like around when all these people were coming in and out for the Beijing Olympics. That didn't get too far. I ran into too many dead ends for that. But we did resurrect the idea, and I worked with two groups in England, Veritasse and uh, Commission for Mission, and we did get to do a version of this digital art show with local church participation in 2012 during the Olympics in the UK. Uh, and that was called Run With The Fire. However, getting lost on the subway in Beijing in 2007 was, um, I was staying at this, this little hotel that was backed onto basically a subway station. And every day I would try and get somewhere and the idea was is that you go down into the subway station and they'd have all the names of the stations in Chinese and I think English on pillars that were from the floor to the roof. So my first problem was, was trying to figure out which direction I should be reading in mm. to try and make sense of this sequence of stations not being able to figure that out there were i would get on the train just to be going somewhere uh <laughs> try and listen for the english language station announcements that periodically came through but the level of conversation in the carriage i was in was so loud because uh, i was with a group of extremely sociable people it seems uh i couldn't hear the english language announcements beneath the general hubbub and joviality. But invariably, I invariably either got lost or found my way eventually to this place. But my experience, my takeaway was from this experience is that we often have to get onto something and get moving, even if it's in what turns out eventually to have been the wrong direction in order to try and figure something out. And that's my experience with Christianity, definitely. And my experience of, you know, the overarching providences of God, 
the um, reading of the Gospel of John. I mean, going back to your question about the Gospel of John, I mean, first advice would be just start reading it. But when you start talking about, I mean, even John gives little bursts of uh, explanation uh, here and there. There are little bits where John steps in and explains something to his first heroes. Um, like in John 4 with the story of uh, Jesus meeting the woman in Samaria by the well, John steps out of character at one point and explains to the audience or those members of the audience for whom this would have been an issue that the, the, the other male disciples had gone to town to buy food. This was why Jesus found himself alone speaking to a woman. Then, uh, you know, a few sentences later, John steps out again and says to another section of his first audience, who apparently were not up on this, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So it's it's pretty simple to conclude from that that John's first generation audience was a mixed audience, some of whom needed to be reassured, you know, to, the edge has to be taken off why Jesus is talking to a woman. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the mystery of uh, the, the tension apparently between Jews and Samaritans has to be touched on. So there are some people that understand one thing and other people that understand another thing. So John here and there throughout the gospel breaks down the fourth wall and steps out and editorializes in a way that is intended to clarify, uh, provide a a contextual frame of reference um, for the stories that he's telling or something that Jesus says. Uh, So, Firstly, John himself does work to help us understand the gospel. Secondly, lots of other people have done work and exploring the language of um, sort of the the imagery and symbolism of the temple and uh, Jesus, or have gone into the, the Old Testament, both the Old Testament narratives the Old Testament teachings, uh, the the ethical standards and the law in the Old Testament, and the layers of paraphrase and interpretation that have built up around those things. And they've said, well, when John talks about, these scholars today would say, when John talks about this, he's making an allusion back to how this passage in the Old Testament might have been paraphrased or interpreted or preached about within certain sort of layers of rabbinic culture, practice, and tradition. And the audience may or may not, as the people of the land, uh, lay people, will pick up on all those inferences and allusions and references. So John himself provides explanations. Two, there are scholars out there that are teasing out all the the references and the resonances that occur when you place John's gospel next to its parent culture of the Old Testament. There are authors like uh, Richard Hayes uh, out of Duke University, who's done really good work on pointing out how a gospel author or an epistle writer is standing on a living tradition that is made up of, you know, maybe an Old Testament textual reference, or its paraphrase, or its previous layers of interpretation. And the New Testament 
writer or speaker will not refer directly verse and chapter in a sort of a 19th or 20th century Protestant way, but will simply make an allusion or pick up an echo of something which is common to both storyteller and audience because they have shared deep cultural memory. I mean, Hayes talks about echoes of scripture in saying the, the writings of Paul or in the gospels. And he's talking about the way in which the gospel tellers and the letter writers will allude, make some sort of incidental reference or broadly paraphrase or say something which suggests an echo of an Old Testament character or a story or an ethical principle or some kind of historical narrative or all the, some or all those things as freighted through layers of um, expansive paraphrase or, and or interpretive tradition. All those elements are part of the cultural memory of both of the storyteller and the storyteller's audience. So, one, John has done some of the work. Two, biblical scholars like Richard Hayes and others have begun to unpack for us the way in which New Testament writers accessed Old Testament material, culture, shared frame of reference in order to make their point to their first audience. And we now have, you know, there's now scholarship, whether it's, you know, Craig Keener's commentary, two-volume commentary on John. There's books by Richard Hayes. There are other books that explore everything from, you know, the temple structure in relation to Jesus. Jesus is replacing the temple or um, John's stories as Greek drama. I mean, people have written about Greek drama and Roman rhetorical forms in relation to how John told his stories. So the, the material that will help us explore both the cultural memory of John's first audience and the bearing that memory has upon how John told his stories, or the socio-cultural environment and the rhetorical environment in which John spoke. The material is now out there. It is for us to step onto that train. But step onto that train, as it were, in the very, very first instance, just read the Gospel of John. I mean, that was the initial impetus for me was, everyone's got a Gospel of John. Everyone's heard the Gospel of John kind of mined for its theological information. Most of us have read the Gospel of John for personal devotion. What if we approached John as a resource for well-informed cultural engagement? What has John got to tell us about that process? had talked about how John at times is structured or has a structure that's akin to a Greek play. Can you give an example or talk more about that? Well, I'm very much a learner in these areas and I understand that people are, I mean, I've read stuff that goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, magazine articles uh, and scholarly journal articles that uh, address the idea that John's gospel, at least at one layer of it, was structured consciously 
like a Greek drama. I think you could drill into particular stories like the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus and see how Nicodemus is positioned. I mean, traditionally, Nicodemus is understood as a sort of a overeducated but somewhat clueless when it comes to matters of the spirit, whereas uh, apparently there's a dramatic trope or a, a kind of a dramatic type from dramas from around that time in which you have a character who wanders onto stage, feigns ignorance, has a sort of a somewhat nuanced agenda in being like buddying up to the main character, which is Jesus, professing ignorance when the main character uh, starts talking about important things and whose agenda is somewhat duplicitous. So some people have written about, say, someone like a Nicodemus or a woman uh, at the well in Samaria as a dramatic foil because you have all these these extended discourses and dialogues that fly back and forth in what looked like very well-staged set pieces. That's not going to tie specifically to, the, to, the, to Greek forms of drama, but the people that I've read on Greek forms of drama, the very first book that I read on this, D. Butler Pratt in 1907, published something called The Gospel of John from the Standpoint of Greek Tragedy. Now, it was published in a magazine called The um, Biblical World. But my, my first exposure to the idea that one could look at either John's gospel as a whole or stories within John's gospel as informed by elements of Greek drama, that was a book called Dialogue and Drama, Elements of Greek Tragedy in the Fourth Gospel, published in 2004, and the author's name was Joanne Brandt. There is a book by Andrew Lincoln called uh, Truth on Trial, The Lawsuit Motive in John's Gospel. And Lincoln and others have argued that the sort of the, the way that John structures his, you know, he's like wheeling these characters on and wheeling them off the Samaritan woman, the man born blind, the man paralyzed by the pool. They're all brought into the witness box bit by bit, uh, or character by character, to bear witness to either the innocence or the guilt of Jesus or the truth or the falsehood of what Jesus is saying about himself. Uh, you, you look at the conversation between uh, the man born blind in John chapter 9, where he's in conversation with the religious authorities, um, there's this kind of this extended, somewhat hostile, or somewhat tense conversation between these the man born blind and the the hostile religious authorities. Very much a you know guilt, innocence, truth, falsehood kind of conversation there. So while I'm not prepared to drill down too deeply into a particular story and say things like, well, we remember this from, you know, Plato's dialogues in the fifth century. Um, uh, what I am saying is that I'm very much a learner at the feet of those who have written about the Gospel of John as looked at through the lenses of Greek tragedy or Greek drama, or they've looked at the Gospel of John and they've dug into what seem to be literary and dramatic conventions. In fact, some conventions that only, or some elements uh, in the Gospel of John that would seem incongruous 
as like a flat literary event, but certainly makes sense as a staging event. Wonder in the silence, lost between the words, feels as if you're never truly heard by those you're reaching out to, the ones you want to care. You want love to surround you, to know there's someone there. Last night I reread John, and I remember what you had said about the book was written to, it, it seems like to Gentiles, because it keeps mentioning, and the Jews did this because of something, 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 and because this was the way of the Jews, you know, so on and so forth. But some people, some critics, have taken those uh, phrases to, I guess, indict the writer of the Gospel of John as an anti-Semite, because it seems almost derogatory if you maybe read it with that slant. What do you say to that? I guess we should recognize that there was some anti-Semitism in the early church, maybe in the first few centuries at some point, that became this divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. So what do you say to that? Well, you brought up three things. I'm going to try and address them. One is the divide between the Jews or the Jewish authorities or the synagogue authorities and the Gentile Christians. Yes, there was a parting of the ways as the infant church grew and as they began to sort themselves out in relation to the Jewish tradition and the Jewish custom and the culture and I think I think at some point they just said, well, you, Christianity is becoming distinct from Judaism. So there, there was an inevitable growing apart with some tension and hostility between the two groups as the church grew and as the church articulated its position in relation to the Jewish tradition. So there's that. Moving on to point two, the actual hostilities or the anti-Semitism that began to occur in, I think, the Church Fathers and stereotypically is attributed to Martin, well, not stereotypically, I understand it's attributed to Martin Luther and others, had as much to do with the idea of this particular community being guilty for the execution of Jesus. So that's related to, but distinct from, those elements that would distinguish Christianity from Judaism. And if I can assert, you know, Martin Luther, if you read a lot of his writings or study his life, when he was convinced he was right, if you disagree with him, it didn't matter who you were, Jew or Gentile, you know, you were excrement of the devil. I mean, he, he was that graphic at times. So there, there you have it. So the three things are there was a growing division between the church and the Jewish authorities of the time based on the, as the clarification, the distinctives of what each group believed, so I understand. Secondly, then there were those people that went around saying, you as an entire nation or you as an entire com community are responsible for the death of Jesus, therefore we are against you. So there's that. But thirdly, when you get to the Gospel of John, given that the Gospel of John is so steeped 
in the Israelite meta-narrative, as it were, so grounded and rooted in the traditions of Israel and Judaism. There are both Jewish and non-Jewish followers that gather around Jesus. I think John, who was told in the upper room, as the Father sent me, so send I you, was speaking to his Jewish contemporaries, as well as the Samaritans and the Gentiles and things like that. I think when John talked about the Jews, my understanding is, is that the language that was used, the term that was used, specified a particular group within the larger community. And that group would be popularly identified with, most generally, those in opposition to Jesus and the growing Jesus movement. And more specifically, those people that were in positions of power, the temple authorities, these somewhat corrupt swamp, as it were, uh, in the temple, that Jesus and perhaps John the Baptists and perhaps other groups on the fringes of Judaism that were very anti-temple and anti-temple corruption, that would be the contemporary reference. A group of people who opposed Jesus and his followers, a group of people that ran the block in terms of the temple and public religious observance, a group of people who were considered to be corrupt versus a more general reference to the Jews who inevitably ended up separating from the Christians or the Christians came out from among the Jews and definitely nothing to do with the much more developed anti-Semitism that we attribute or has been attributed to some of the church fathers and Martin Luther and people like that. You heard me once. What will you gain from repetition? Perhaps you care to follow him as well. My parents, by the way, bring nothing in addition to what I'll gladly tell. They faithfully attend your main events Their open purse fattens your building fund. So it was cold, you calling them like that. And if you've not been told, you soon will learn. You cannot trust the people on my street. It seems, on my return, they all supposed that I was someone they weren't sure they'd met. As for those who first came walking by, they talked about me as if I wasn't there. I felt so burned, I barely caught the thrust of his replies about the day, its work, the coming night. Then I heard him spit, and what felt like clay was smeared across my face. Go to the pool and wash that off, he said. And that was it. So I don't know how you'll find him. I did not see him then. I was still blind when he put mud upon my eyes. But there's something in his voice that I think I'd recognize if he should ever speak to me again. How is this going to manifest for you artistically, the Gospel of John? Well, I've been been writing and publishing essays and stuff on the Gospel of John, I blogged about it. During the um, coronavirus 
or whatever virus it is, during the current <laughs> pandemic that we're in, I quarried four chapters from a much larger manuscript on the Gospel of John and creativity that I've been working on for some years. Uh, and I've turned it into a, a small-ish book that uh, looks at four stories, the um, wedding at Cana, the cleansing or the clearing of the temple, the dialogue with Nicodemus, and the, the encounter between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. And I've looked at those four stories, A, in terms of what the stories have to tell us as individual units, B, in terms of how the stories connect to one another. You know, what's the through line for the original author? What can we learn from the story of the wedding at Cana, which, you know, you got Jesus miraculously turning like 120 gallons of water into wine, and a village wedding suddenly becomes both a social problem and an economic problem that, that Jesus helps solve for the young couple and their family. Uh, but also the, the wedding becomes carries echoes, if you like, of what the Old Testament prophets were talking about about the reconciliation and restoration, the rebuilding of the relationship between God and Israel, and that rebuilding and the fruits of that rebuilding refracted through the language of feasts, of weddings, uh, and what have you. So this village wedding ends up becoming emblematic in some ways of this preferred future that the Old Testament prophets talk about. And then you have, at one level, the glaring contrast of Jesus going into the temple and overturning the money changers' tables and driving out the animals. Um, so at one level, it's a very stark, dark and light contrast between these two stories, the village wedding, which is a gracious offer of abundance, and the situation in the temple, which is religiosity based on shame. At one level, as, as I say, there's this dark and light contrast, a dark and light contrast. At another level, it's as if the village wedding establishes what God is placing on offer in terms of restoration and reconciliation. And then with the incident in the temple, with the, that mysterious dialogue about tearing this temple down, and in three days I will raise it up. It's almost as if the wedding forms an image of what's on offer. And then what happens in the temple, with the talk of it tearing down, is an indication of how this offer will be made available. And then like the story of Nicodemus, where Jesus ends up referring him to a passage in Numbers 21 of the Old Testament book, where Moses put a brazen serpent on a pole because the Israelites had gotten sick after being bitten by snakes. And so this, this, this healing process that uh, Jesus obliquely alludes to and refers to himself in this way. So, so John draws on this image in Jesus's words, he draws on the image of this, this metal snake put on a pole in the wilderness. Uh, and as I said, the, the, the cultural reference or the book references is, is in Numbers 21, uh, a little bit later on in that same section of Old Testament narrative, the Israelites are gifted with a miraculous water supply in the wilderness. Uh, and they sing the song, Spring Up O Well. So both the conversation with Nicodemus and the conversation with the Samaritan woman are anchored in a sort of a subtext drawn from the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers, one in reference to the brazen serpent, the other in reference to this, this, this well of living water that's going to come up.
So that's my interest in jamming together these four stories. And my interest in John generally is in finding out what what has John done in the name of creativity in context and what can we learn from his process? Because I think we'll be, be much more creative and much more culturally engaged if we could follow the example of some of the people in the first generation that were doing it in the light of the scholarship in the 20th and 21st century that is showing us a little bit of how they did it. I was in, I'm going to try, I'll mangle this, Kanyakumari, India, May 2019, at an an international dance event and culture tour. Faith-based, Christian faith-based dance practitioners from all over the world uh, coming together to talk about dance, uh, explore the local culture, looking at dancing from Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, uh, England, and all points in between. I was sharing some ideas with some of the dancers about the Gospel of John as a platform for, for an artistic collaboration and also as a you know permission slip for collaboration and creativity. So I'm talking to all these dancers about these things and I'm giving examples from within the Gospel of John of creativity, the story of the changing of the water into wine, uh, stories like that. We're looking at ways of reading the Gospel of John, not only for its unique subject matter, which is Jesus, but also for the ways in which you can inspire us in our own creativity. And one exercise in that was I worked with uh, Lisa Wilson, senior lecturer of University of Cape Town, and an excellent dancer and drama teacher, I gave her the poem, The Blind Man Speaks Up, and she worked with an international group of dancers and movers over something like a 48-hour, 72-hour at the most period. And we were able to do this performance. But as I recited the poem, and all these dancers under Lisa's direction, they put together this um, kind of street theater piece around the poem, like acting it out and imaging it and symbolizing it in various different ways and narrating it through movement. Uh, And the whole thing came together in about, as I say, like two days. So I just wanted to tell that story as both an, an indication of what I hope happens in the future on a larger scale with the Gospel of John and also as an indication of what's already taken place. Our discussion about the Jesus found in John got me to thinking about one of Mr. Scott's excellent songs, Flesh and Blood. When I first heard Flesh and Blood, it reminded me of my Christian history studies about first couple of centuries where Gnostics were such a threat to the early church. And I thought, it's almost like Steve Scott lived in the those couple centuries, and this was his protest song against them. So 
Is that what you were getting at, or did you have a different? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So are, um, no, are Gnostics still a thing? I would say so. Only only last week, I was reading some uh, different people's like PhD theses and some book material upon a Victorian preacher called Edward Irving. It was in Irving's church that many of the things that we associate with the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movement got their start. Irving in his day was condemned by some because of how he stated his convictions concerning how deeply Jesus identified with um, human frailty and the flesh. I mean, the, the, the questions being, you know, could Jesus sin? Those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And Irving was tagged, rightly or wrongly, as being on the wrong side of the answer to, to that question in terms of orthodoxy. And so I was looking at that, and I was looking at threads of, like, Irvingite scholarship, as it were, that were debating the pros and cons of what it was that what Irving was actually trying to say. Um, but if you go back into the first three or four centuries of the of the church, the debate about whether Jesus was generically human, i.e., not a particular human being, or was he just like a really good guy? that God adopted when he got baptized in water and then received the Holy Spirit? Was he simply someone who only appeared to be human but was not quite human, the docetic Gnosticism? So there were there were church there were people that would argue that Jesus was either only generically human, which is a bit off the plot, rather than being a particular human. There'd be people that would argue that he was like a really good human who got adopted or empowered by God and then abandoned at the cross, say. Wow. And then there'd be others that would um, say, well, you know, he came down from the father of light and he was more like a hologram, um, didn't really take on full humanity um, or completely and utterly, so he didn't really suffer or uh, those kinds of things. And there'd be other people that would say, well, okay, well, the God of the New Testament sent this Jesus to save us from the God of the Old Testament, who they these people would imagine are two completely different gods based on a superficial reading of the Old Testament uh, compared to the New Testament. So the ideas then about Jesus's humanity and or aberrant understandings of his divinity and or aberrant understandings of the relationship between his humanity and his divinity. Those things fueled the early church discussions. They tend to crop up from time to time in the history of the church. Um, They swirled around in the 19th century, uh, care of people like Edward Irving, and um, the, the impact of some of those ideas are still with us today on the fringes of church circles. And yes, 
long story short, that's what that song was about. A little bit of Mike Rose guitar playing on the live version of Flesh and Blood was reversed and looped as a backdrop for the poem, The Eclipse, which was featured on the Cross My Heat album put out by the, uh, the Harding Street Assembly Lab. The Eclipse. When you began, the colors seemed to rain. The stars all danced in place, scribbling in wild ribbons across the faces of all who came to listen as a new day was proclaimed. You should have known that things could not remain this way. We have your words and the promises we break to chain you here. We tell the story now and everything we say is growing darker. Let's get this straight. This is our world now. Move the shadows center stage. Kill all the lights and let the darkness play its role as we had planned. We are your fate. You are without defense. No one can ignore our evidence. These consequences stem, you understand, from your refusal to negotiate. And what is left? Only the dream of falling, only the fear of letting go. It is too late. You will let go. What else is there to do? You will not fight. Feel your breath slip and cold as stone your heart losing its grip on life. A fading sun rolls down the weeping sky and sinks beneath the horizon's bloodied lip. We turn away, the work is done, order maintained, no matter if it seems our hands are stained. Business as usual, Nothing left to chance. You have been silenced. Given the circumstance, what else was there to do? The world you spoke of, fading like a bruise. Too many empty promises. Too many scattered clues to guide the dreaming hangers-on. We notice they've gone too. But turn again, we're shaken to the core as everything we've worked for comes undone. Our shadowed world explodes, releases you as if a door had opened to let the real world through. For most of us, it's much too bright to see. Describe the colors and no doubt we'll agree there's something there. But only speak, and each word framed in light will throw our darkness into sharp relief. Your judgment is exact, 
we will not fight. Who could resist? For now that you have found us, we are lost. But only speak and let us trembling hear how your heart still aches to draw us near. Name our blind fears, address our unbelief, bind up our grief, and wipe away these tears. So, where can folks find your writings about John that you had mentioned earlier? Well, there's two things. One is, if you go to, it's just one word, crying for a vision, WordPress, WordPress is like a second word, I think, um, you'll get to my blog on art, faith, and cultures. So crying for um, a so vision. That, yeah, one word, crying for a vision, like dot WordPress or whatever it is. You'll see there's a stuff about my books, about my albums, and there's a blog. And in the blog, going back through the years, you will find excursions into different stories from the Gospel of John and unpacking those stories and looking at the literary and the cultural aspects of those stories. I'm trying to pull pull together a booklet that uh, hopefully I'll publish soon that looks at a cluster of stories from the Gospel of John. And uh, if people want to write to me in relation to that project and others, the word is semi-o-naught. Okay, you'll have to spell that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. S-E-M-I-O-N-A-U-T. Semi-o-naught, followed by the numbers two and one. So semi-o-naught 21 at gmail.com. What I'll say is that if you write to that email address, I can send you information about what I'm working on with the Gospel of John. And I've got a few copies of my more general, like a, a book of essays on the arts called Crying for a Vision. And I've got a few copies of a CD. If you spell it right and you get through to me and you write to that address, we can work out something whereby you get a book and a CD as an incentive for not very much outlay. Okay. <laughs> okay. And another thing that you had mentioned in your story about getting on the train in Beijing was the yeah, run, yeah. the run with fire presentation. Is that up online anywhere for folks to see? Uh, I can include information about that in the email. If you write to semionaut21 at gmail.com, I will include that. Run with the Fire was an international digital art exhibit with art from South Korea, Africa, uh, Indonesia, America, England. All these artists sent their images to me, and then I had a jury. It was a juried show. They We put together something like 25 examples of art. And the idea was this was intended to go with or be used as part of the Olympic celebration in Britain in 2012. And what I mean by that is that um, community centers or churches or whatever could download or actually obtain a CD or a DVD with the images on it 
plus instructions on how to use them. And the, the plan was, or the plan is, or the plan was at that time, is that you find a way of making a digital display of this international artwork that deals with the idea of running with the fire, whether we're talking about the Olympic flame or the flame of Pentecost coming down. So all this international artwork that celebrated some aspect of that. And then you put other artwork, you coordinate uh, and curate a local or regional show of local artists addressing the same theme. And you put that up on the walls, on plinths or whatever, around the digital display of the original 25 images. That happened. Uh, in London, uh, in a central London gallery, in churches around London. Some places, I mean, on the coast of England, they did like a run with the fire a month. Someone did like, uh, coordinated this in, this citywide event in which the original artwork was on display, but there was also breakdancing and crafts and a whole plethora of events kind of packed around this uh, this run with the fire seed. The video run with the fire runs about twenty minutes, so I've not. I don't think that was posted on YouTube at all. But the I'm thinking of uh, rebooting the whole premise with um, like a core of art from the 2012 show, and more art drawn in contemporary new art. Uh, with the idea of positioning it towards the um, 2021 Olympics in Japan, if indeed those take place. So again, drop me a line at semionort21 at gmail.com if you're interested in learning more about the next iteration of that project as well. We're going to put a bookmark in it for now, but on the next episode, Mr. Scott will discuss his early years as a believer in England while stumbling across a burgeoning group of fellow Brits who are working at giving witness to their faith via art and music. If you're still in a Steve Scott mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episodes 222 and 223 a listen, where the work and life of the said artist is discussed in among other topics by guests Jace Severs and John J. Thompson, respectively. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. In the shadow blur.